Today we're going to talk about relationships. And there's been a lot of talk about relationships in the news this last week. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but if you're an NFL fan, there's been a lot in the news this week about Ray Rice and his then fiance, how he knocked her out in an elevator. And uh, there's video of him dragging her out of the elevator. He's been suspended indefinitely from ever playing professional football again. And then, too, there is somebody who's been really popular. That's Adrian Peterson, who was arrested this week for child abuse for over-disciplining his son. Not only that, there is this guy. He's Jonathan Dwyer. He's a running back for the Arizona Cardinals. He was arrested for domestic abuse this week. And then there's Ray McDonald for the... 49ers, and he's already been convicted of domestic abuse, but he's fighting the charges, which means he continues to play. I'm sad to say he was a former Florida Gator. But just to keep things fair, there was also this guy, who's Jameis Winston, Heisman Trophy winner for FSU last year, and he uh, just can't control himself when he's around others. So he was suspended from the game and nearly cost FSU their number one slot. They won in overtime yesterday without him. So you see, there's lots of people who struggle with relationships, some very big in public ways and most of us in kind of smaller and private ways. But all of us have some relational bumps and some relational bruises. And Jesus had something to say about that. We see it in Matthew's 22nd chapter, verses 37 to 39 in the NIV. And Jesus says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see what God's saying is we're to put our all into our relationships. Because our relationships are really the most important thing to us in life. And not only that, but we're to love him with all our heart and soul and everything. We're to love our neighbors in the same way. And if you want to get a really beautiful picture of the type of relationships that God wants us to have, the quality of the relationships. We're going to take a look at that this morning. But first, we're going to mention that we're going to take a look at some relational strengths, some things that strengthen our relationships with others. And we're also going to look at some stuff that kind of does the other thing, that kind of takes them down, because those strains uh, cause us stresses, and they cause us to struggle so much as we deal with other people. And I know uh, recently, uh, my grandson Keaton, uh, who has a friend, who's sort of a friend, sometimes not a friend, and man, on the bus, it's been bad. It's just a very much a part of what we're talking about today. So this is a beautiful look at the kind of relationships and the quality of relationships God wants us to have. So watch this. What's up, brother? Yeah, oh, man. Dude, it's a big night. Are you nervous? Yeah, to be honest with you, I'm actually pretty nervous. Um, it has been a while. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, so where are you going? I'm going to have, uh, I'm gonna have some people set up, set up dinner on the back porch. Oh, nice. Yeah, she won't expect it at all.
How beautiful that is. The quality of the relationship, the way they relate. And of course, it's a father and daughter, and all of our relationships can't be like that. I, I'm always really happy to see, if the air conditioner goes out at home, the repairman, you know what I mean? But somehow, uh, when he comes, uh, the feelings I have for him are not kind of the same as what we saw there. And then, too, there's the dreaded uh, car repairs that we've been through lately, and it's kind of not the same thing when the mechanic shares with me how much it's going to cost to keep the old car on the road. Somehow the warm, fuzzy enjoyables aren't so much there. But this morning we're going to look at four things that strengthen our relationship and four things that strain our relationship. First one we see in James chapter 4 and verse 1. And it's a question. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? And uh, where do all these kind of quarrels and wars come from? Uh, there's a place, and it's called selfishness. There's a strain. You know, wars come from political leaders who say, I want what you got, and I'm going to fight you to take it no matter what. We see that, don't we, with President Putin right now from Russia as he's been invading Kosovo. He says, I want Kosovo, and I don't care how many people are going to die or who's going to get hurt doing it. We see it from ISIS, don't we, in Iraq and in Syria. They don't care how many people die or how many people are wounded there. But Scripture also gives us an answer to that question as to where do all these appalling wars and quarrels come from. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You see, selfishness is a battle that goes on within each of us. It spills out to others in which we deep down inside, often without even realizing it, don't really care about how it impacts others. And it's funny just how the opposites are true when we begin relationships. Just think when you begin dating your spouse, how different it was. In fact, a guy named Dennis Rainey wrote a book called Staying Close. And in it, he identified several stages of a physical (coughs) cold when it breaks out in a relationship. And he defines it this way. In the first year of marriage, it might go like this. Baby darling, I'm so worried about that sniffle. I've called the paramedics to rush you to the hospital for a checkup and a week of rest. I know you hate hospital food, and so I'm having gourmet meals brought to you there in the hospital. Wow, the first year of marriage. And then there's the second year of marriage. Sweetheart, I don't like the sound of that cough, so I've arranged for the doctor to come here and make a house call, and so let me go and and tuck you in bed. That's year two. Third year of marriage. Hey, it looks like you've got a fever. Why don't you drive yourself over to Centricare, see a doctor, get some medicine. I'll watch the kids. You just take care of yourself. That's year three. Here's year four. Look, be sensible. After you've fed and bathed the kids and washed the dishes, you really need to go to bed. And then there's year five. For Pete's sake, do you have to cough so loud? I mean, you sound like a barking dog. I can't hear the TV. Would you mind going into the other room while this show is on? And you see, that's kind of the way it is. Someone once said that in my first year of marriage, my wife used to bring me my slippers and my dog would greet me barking happily. And now all that happens is my wife barks at me. My dog only chews my slippers. Well, Pastor Rick Warren says that if there was more courting in marriage... There would be fewer marriages in court. (laughs) I think that's true. You know, we just stop sometimes making the effort in our relationships, don't we? And it's so easy when we do that to slide into selfishness. And we know that selfishness definitely destroys relationships. 
The question is, why don't we change? Well, there's a couple reasons for that. First, it's natural. It's naturally human nature to want to be selfish. I don't know about you, but I think it's true of all of us. I think more about me most of the time than I think about other people. I think about my needs, my interests, my hurts. And there's a second reason, too, and it's because our culture constantly feeds our self-centeredness. Think about it. You realize every advertisement that comes along on television is aimed at catering to your self-centeredness, like, have it your way. We do it all for you. But we see in Proverbs 28, 25 in today's English version that selfishness only causes trouble. Now, let me ask you this. Can you think of any time, any time at all, that selfishness causes anything but or anything else or anything other than trouble? I don't think you can. So the first relational strain is of selfishness, and the first relational strength to counteract that is selflessness. And selflessness has tremendous relational strength. But what does it mean? Well, it means I think a little bit less of myself and a little bit more of you. Philippians 2.4 in today's English version says this, Look out for one another's interest, not just for your own. You see, that's selflessness. And there's really a crazy thing about selflessness. Selflessness brings out the best in us, which is obvious. But selflessness also brings about the best in others. In fact, if you start acting selfless with somebody else in a relationship, it forces that person to change because you're no longer the same person that you were. And they have to relate to you in a different way. It not only transforms us, it transforms others. It can cause some of the most unlovable and unlikable people to change. You know, the very first day I started visiting homeless camps in Fern Park about two years ago, I went to the very first homeless camp and introduced myself. And there was one guy in there that just did not like me. I mean, he was rude to me. And he was sarcastic to me. Um, he was He just, you know, talked horribly to me. And yet when I started talking to the other people there, after a while, they said, hey, to this guy, you need to give him a break. His name is Shannon. And so after a while, he said, well, you know what? I'll tell you what, I'll take you around to all the other homeless camps here in Fern Park. Where there were about eight within a mile of where we were. And since then, we've become pretty decent friends. So when you start being selfless towards others, not just talking about the homeless in Fern Park, but when you start being selfless to other people and giving them what they need, it transforms them into different people. good example of this is the film As Good As It Gets. And it, Jack Nicholson's this really unlikable guy. But he has all kinds of compulsions and hang-ups, and he's just kind of cranky. And so what happens is he meets Helen Hunt, who shows him genuine love, genuine selflessness, and it transforms him. Watch this. Okay. Now, I got a real great compliment for you, and it's true. I'm so afraid you're about to say something awful. Don't be pessimistic. It's not your style. Okay. Here I go. You make me want to be a better man. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Indeed, selflessness causes us and causes others to want to be better and to be different than what we see. It can be heartfelt. But you know what God's favorite place is to bring you into more selflessness? It's with those people who are closest to you, 
those who um, have an expectation that you are going to be there for them. Because in those relationships with people that are close to you, it's the give and take, it's your interaction with them that can be a very powerful thing. It can completely change the dynamics of your relationship. If you don't believe me, just try it. Here's the thing. Try being really selfless with some of the people that are really closest to you. And you will see in that relationship a change. But here's the thing. Don't start doing selfless things. See that change and then decide you're going to stop doing those selfless things. Because you're going to see a change of a whole other kind. So do some new selfless things and keep on doing them. In Galatians 6, 7, and 8, we see this. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others and ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for it in his life is weeds. Now, what are weeds? Well, weeds are plants that are unwanted. And they're unplanned, which take over and overrun plants that are good. You can kind of say weeds are sort of the cancer of plants. And just as selfishness is kind of the cancer of relationships. But look at what else Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life and eternal life. So what does that say? Well, it says God's wired the universe in such a way That the more unselfish you are, the more he blesses you. And why is that? It's because God wants you to become like him, who is the epitome of unselfishness. Think about it. Everything you have is actually a gift of God. And that's because God is so unselfish with you. That's just the way he is. And, you know, through our helping hands ministry, we get a taste of that, don't we? And why are we doing that? We're doing that because Jesus said, go and do that. But a byproduct of that, without our consciously thinking about it, is to practice unselfishness. And to practice unselfishness is a really good thing. So beyond the strain of selfishness and the strength of selflessness comes relational chain number two. And see this in Proverbs 13.10 in the Living Bible. It simply just puts it this way. Pride leads to arguments. And so the second relational strain that we have is pride. And pride shows up, you know, in a whole lot of ways. It shows up first in criticism. If you're critical of other people or if you're judgmental of other people, if you tend to look down on other people, I hate to tell you this, but you probably have a bit of a pride problem. If you tend to be competitive and you're always saying, oh, look at her dress compared to mine or look at his car compared to mine, or you're always comparing salaries or uh, husbands or wives or children or titles or jobs or anything like that, you have a pride problem. You have stubbornness and you find it difficult to say, hey, I'm sorry. You have a pride problem. But the real problem with pride is that it's self-deceiving. Everybody else can see it in you except for yourself. So the Bible says this in Proverbs 16:18 in the New Covenant translation. It says, pride will destroy a person and a proud attitude leads to ruin. Let me say there's a whole bunch of examples that we could use in the Bible to see this. There's Rehoboam and there's Nebuchadnezzar. But I thought we'd use that great theologian Bob from the movie, What About Bob? And the story, Bill Murray is Bob and Richard Dreyfus is his psychiatrist. And so Bob and the psychiatrist's son are both deathly afraid of water and they want to learn to dive. So Richard Dreyfus tries over and over again with his son to teach him how to dive. But he can't do that. It just greatly frustrates him. And so finally, it's Bob and the son together, 
And Bob teaches the son how to dive. And it greatly, greatly frustrates Richard Dreyfus, who has to deal with it. And watch this. See, after Richard Dreyfus pushes Bob into the water, trying to get to his son, the family are really concerned about Bob and trying to get him back to the dock. And afterwards, his son asks him, Dad, are you going to apologize to Bob? And he says, no, why should I? You see, even though he's a trained psychologist with years of experience, he's completely blind to the poison of pride in his life. And the tough thing is he's not alone in that. His pride can show up lots of ways and be completely self-deceiving. It can destroy a person, and a proud attitude can lead to our ruin. So don't let that be you. And so the second relational strain that causes trouble, stress, and struggle in our lives is what we would call pride. But the second relational strength that counter pride is what we call humility. 1 Peter 3.8 in the God's Word version tells us this, Live in harmony. Be sympathetic, love each other, have compassion, and be humble. And you see those four things, harmony, sympathy, love, and compassion, are really unlocked through that fifth one, and being humble. And notice the first one, live in harmony. That's what God really wants in our relationship. And harmony comes from our blending together who we are, even though we are different. And in sympathy, the beauty doesn't come because you have all these different instruments. The beauty comes because... All those instruments are able to blend together. If you have a guy that stands up in his chair playing the flute and he plays louder than everybody else, then after that's going to ruin the whole thing. Same thing in relationships. If you are relating to a person or a group of people and one person says, notice me, notice me, notice me, and won't let anybody else be noticed, then it ruins the joy of harmony that God puts in our relationships and the richness of life he wants us to experience. So how do we grow in humility? It's a pretty tall order. Happens by letting Jesus Christ control our thoughts and our hearts and our attitudes and reaction. He's got to be part of this. And so we see in Ephesians 4th chapter, verse 23 and 24, this. Let the Spirit change your way of thinking and make you into a new person. So how do you become a new person? It's the basic law of relationships. You tend to become the people that you are with and you spend time with. Spend time with grumpy people and guess what? You're going to get more grumpy. Spend time with happy people, and you're going to get more happy. You want to be humble, and you want to grow in your humility. Spend time with the most humble person that's ever lived, and that is Jesus Christ. He wants a relationship with you, and he wants you and I to spend time with him in prayer and in reading the Bible, listening to messages, talking with others about him, thinking about him. And look what Philippians second chapter, verses 3, 5, and 6 in the New Century and the Living Translation says, Be humble and give more honor to others than yourself. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. No one was any more humble than what Jesus Christ did. Think about it. He came from heaven to earth. He became a man to live for us, to give his life for us, and to be resurrected for us. As I spend more time around him, He enables me to become more humble 
and that helps to build relationships. So again, beyond the strain, the stress, the struggle of pride and the counterpart of humility comes the third problem, the third strain in our lives, and that's insecurity. In fact, the Bible talks about this in Proverbs 29, 25. It says, the fear of human opinion disables. You know, when our insecurity causes us to be so concerned about what other people are thinking about us, it can be debilitating. It causes us to second-guess ourselves, doesn't it? And lose sight of what's really important. It also can bleed over into our relationships in a way that we want to project our insecurity on others. We try to interfere with them. We try to control them in order to keep them safe. And it's always easier to recognize that in who? In somebody else rather than in yourself. And it's easy to see this in this clip from Finding Nemo. Nemo! No! Dad? You're about to swim into open water! No, I wasn't going to go It's just a good thing I was here. If I hadn't shown up, I don't know... he wasn't going to go! Yeah, he was too afraid. No, I wasn't. This does not concern you, kids. And you're lucky I don't tell your parents you were out there. You know you can't swim well. I can swim fine, Dad, okay? No, it's not okay. You shouldn't be anywhere near here. Okay, I was right. You know what? We'll start school in a year or two. No, Dad! Just because you're scared of the ocean... Clearly you're not ready and you're not coming back until you are. You think you could do these things, but you just can't, Nemo! I hate you. Ooh, don't you hate it when you hear those words that are said like that? I hate you. And they come most often when someone's trying to control someone else, often from their insecurity. It's funny how we humans, we really want to be close to other people, but at the same time, we fear being too close. We want to be intimate with folks. We don't want to be too intimate. And our fear here is actually exposure. Uh, we fear someone finding out what we are really like. And so what we do is we, we hide ourselves, we guard ourselves, we try to protect ourselves from that. And really kind of goes back to one of the oldest fears in all the world, back to Adam, the very first man. In the third chapter of Genesis, verse 10, where Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And what he's saying was, I was afraid because I was exposed, and you would see me as I really was, and so therefore I hid. And so what happens is that when we're afraid of that, we hide ourselves, we cover up, we wear masks, we pretend to be people that we're really not. And the fear here is the fear of rejection, which may be the greatest fear of all. It can cause us to close ourselves off from others and say, I'm never going to let anybody hurt me again. It causes us to build up walls in our lives. But God says, don't let things like that harden your heart because that's a self-imposed prison you don't want to be in. You're not living when you're there. You're just existing. In the movie White Squall, this is a very hard-to-get-along sailor, and he's tried to go through advances of tests to better himself, and the only way he can do that is to cheat. Finally, the other sailors figure that out, and they confront him about it. The thing about this guy is he's been a bully to all of them, really an extreme bully. And so when they confront him with that, he finally has to fess up. He said, the reason that I have to cheat is because I don't read so fast, and because I can't read so fast, I can't keep up. So you would think that those who he has tormented most would turn on him, would turn him in, would give him back what you think he would deserve, but it's not so much the case. I'm never going to pass the boards. I'll tell you what, you don't cheat anymore, and we'll make sure you get the grades. Okay, we'll start our own private study group. Nobody else knows you'll ace that test. I'm in. Me too. Why indeed? Because 
There's something more from that third relational strain of insecurity, and that thing is love. You see, the love of those guys that were on that ship all there together, that bond was greater than the nastiness of that one bully as it had been to him. And so the bully was really impacted and deeply touched by that love. The Bible says in 1 John 4.18 in the Living Translation, love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. (laughs) You look at that and you go, okay, sounds good, but how in the world does that really work? Well, here's what it does. Love takes the focus off of you and it puts the focus on to others. Rick Warren, who's pastor of one of the largest churches in America, Saddleback, is often asked, do you get nervous speaking in front of all these people? And he says, of course I do. There's a lot of people out there. But you know what the difference is, he says? The difference is, is when I happen to take my focus off of me and I put the focus on the people that are sitting out there listening. And if I'm standing there and I'm thinking, you know, what are they thinking about what I say? What are they thinking about how I look? Or what do they think about my hair? Then I am in trouble and I could get nervous and afraid very quickly. He said, but when I'm standing there and my thoughts are on how much I love them, And my thoughts are on how much they love God, how much we all love God together. And then all of a sudden, all fear goes out the door. And so we find the power to focus on people because God does that with us. And in that, he shows us just how much he loves us. And here's something to realize. Realize how much God loves you. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. He loves you more than your capacity to receive it. But just because you can't receive it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you that much. And that love still is not coming your way all the time. And you know how freeing it is when you you can embrace that? When you realize God loves you and I don't have to prove myself anymore? All of a sudden my identity and my self-worth, they're not caught up in how others are thinking of me. They're caught up in my relationship with Christ. I'm not pressured by everyone else to live up to their expectations anymore. All of us want that. All of us want to live with that kind of confidence in our lives. Where do you get it? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 16 and 17 that God's love. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect so that we will not be afraid. Notice the word there, grows. Because love does grow. And it's a lifelong process. It's one of the most important of all of the journeys that we have in life. And it grows just a little bit each day. This is 1 Peter 4, 8 in the Living Bible says, Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love makes up for many of your faults. And if you add up all of our faulty relational strains, those of selfishness, those of pride, those of insecurity, well, what they do is they often lead to resentment. Because when you don't get your way with others, what do you do? You can begin to resent them. Job, in the fifth chapter, verse 2, in today's English version, says, to worry yourself to death with resentment is a foolish and it's really a senseless thing to do. And here's why. Because we're all imperfect. We're going to hurt other people. Other people are going to hurt us. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. But the fact is we're all going to get hurt from time to time. But more importantly, what do you do with that hurt? Because what you do with it is a whole lot more important than the hurt itself. Are you going to allow it to make you better? (laughs) Or are you going to allow it to make you bitter, to resentful, and to carry a grudge? Let me clarify something. Resentment always begins with anger. And anger is not always wrong, but resentment is always wrong. You see, there is a right kind of anger and a wrong kind of anger. If I see injustice in the world, 
then I had better get angry. Somebody hurts my kid or my kids, I get angry. That's a legitimate anger. In fact, the Bible says be angry and do not sin. In other words, there's a way that you can be angry and not sin, but there's a way you can be angry and sin. But resentment, that is the fruit of anger, is always wrong. What happens is you pile up anger in your heart, it becomes frozen there. And God says, don't go there, don't do this. There's two reasons for that. First, when you get resentful, what do you do? You stop thinking clearly. Your logic goes out the window. You start thinking in ways that are distorted. Your perspective gets clouded. And so when that happens, the second part of it is you start acting in self-defeating ways. And some of the most foolish things ever done in the history of the world were done in revenge or done in retaliation or done in resentment. Even though I must admit at first some of those things feel kind of good, don't they? Watch this. Excuse me, uh, I was waiting for that space. Yeah? Tough. Face it, lady, we're younger and faster. Now admit it, you probably enjoyed that just a little bit, didn't you? And it's human nature to want us to get even. But when you're resentful, those two things happen. You don't think logically and you get sucked into self-defeating behavior, which means resentment doesn't really work. It never hurts the other person as much as ultimately it hurts you. So what's the antidote? Well, the antidote to resentment is forgiveness. Colossians 3.13 in the New Living Translation says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now, why should I forgive people? There's three reasons. First is that resentment doesn't work. It's only going to make you miserable, and holding a grudge is only going to hurt yourself with anger. Secondly, you have been forgiven by God. And thirdly, you're going to need some more forgiveness in your life in the future. So, God says you better be open to that by offering it to others. Isn't that pretty much what it says in the Lord's Prayer? When we pray, forgive us our sins just as we've forgiven those who have sinned against us. You're saying and praying in that, dear God, I want you to forgive me as much as I forgive everybody else. And because of that, it's kind of a challenge for us. That's why we need Jesus Christ, because you can't do it on your own. You see, human love has limits in the natural But God's love in the supernatural has no limits. And so we need his love to be able to forgive as he does. In the film, Pay It Forward, Helen Hunt finds her mother. Her mother's been homeless for many years. She was abused growing up as the hands of her mother, the hands of her mother's friends. And so what she decides to do is she needs to go find her mother in order to forgive her. Watch this. Hi, Mom. What are you doing here? I wanted to see you. After three years, I couldn't. I can't watch you do this. What are you doing here? Are are you going to try to put me somewhere? No. Then what do you want? I want to try to do something. All the things when I was a kid, the booze and the men, what happened to me when you weren't looking? 
know we're all weak. Not you. No, I've been weak. Well, here's the thing. I forgive you. You see, forgiveness is a very, very powerful thing. So the question is, who do you need to forgive? If you think about that, let me explain what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not minimizing the hurt when it hurts. Forgiveness is not saying it was no big deal when it was a big deal. Forgiveness is not saying something wasn't wrong when it was wrong. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is letting go of the pain and letting go of my right to get even. Well, why would anybody want to do that? Well, do it for your own sake. Because you're living in misery the longer that you hold on to anything in resentment. And some of us are still allowing people from our past incredibly to hurt us in the present. Even though they cannot actually do a thing to us today. To hurt you anymore at all. The past is a past. Every time you hang on to a grudge, you're perpetuating your own pain. It only hurts you if you refuse to let go. Forgiveness is the only way to let go. And that's because resentment turns your heart into a desert and it dries you up emotionally. It limits your ability to be giving and to be tender with others because you don't have anything to give when you're stuck in the past. You can't go on into the future. And again, it turns you into a desert and drives you up inside. But you know what? God's brought each of you here this morning for a reason because he's got some good news for you. And here's what God says to you. In Isaiah, 43rd chapter, verses 18 and 19, in the God's Word version, the Lord says, forget what happened before. Don't think about the past. God says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to make rivers on dry land. I'm going to turn that desert inside of you into an oasis. You know, all of us have some relational disasters in our lives, every one of us. But the question is, what are we going to do with them? So as we close this morning, let me ask you four very personal questions. Firstly, when it comes to selfishness, who have you been selfish with? Who have you been critical or judgmental of? Who might that be? File that person's name away and revisit them later. Secondly, when it comes to your pride, who have you been unwilling to admit, hey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? Who do you need to say that to? Thirdly, when it comes to your insecurity, Who is it that you've worn a mask with and who is it that you're afraid to let know who you really are and to be totally honest with who's that person? And fourthly, in terms of your resentment, who is it that you have some really hard feelings against? Who do you have some bitterness again that you just can't seem to get past? All the antidotes to those things of resentment and insecurity and selfishness and pride, all four of those antidotes are found in a relationship with Jesus. You need to get into that relationship with him and get things lined up. And as you do, all the others were going to just simply fall into place. You need to allow Jesus Christ to be the Lord or the manager or the guide or the boss or however you want to think of that in your life. You need to let him fill you with his selflessness, fill you with his humility, fill you with his love, fill you with his forgiveness. And if you do that, you'll start to have great relationships with other people. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Jesus, you've seen every relationship I've ever had, the good, the bad, the ugly. And you know how selfishness and pride and insecurity, resentment messes all those relationships up. 
I admit that I need your help, Jesus, in my life and in my relationships. Much as I can understand, I ask you to come into my life, live through me, and pour out your selflessness, your humility, your love, and your forgiveness through me. I want a fresh start in my life, the one you can only offer. And so I lift this up in your name, dear Jesus. And all God's people say, amen.